Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. For the Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. In 1972, President Nixon was elected by a 49-state landslide and nearly 50 million votes. He built a grand coalition welcoming in traditionally Democratic voters, including ethnic voters, blue-collar workers, and labor leaders. One of the architects of this new majority is Mike Balzano. Uh, he served in the Nixon White House under Charles Colson at the P Office of Public Liaison and was a campaign strategist for both Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He continues to be influential on the political scene and has built bridges between Fortune 100 CEOs and industrial-based unions. He's also the author of a new memoir about his work in this area. It's called Building a New Majority. Uh, former California governor and U.S. Senator uh, Pete Wilson says of Balzano that no one understands better than Mike Balzano how free market economics enable political conservatives and private sector unions to join forces to set prudent job-creating budget priorities. He preaches mutual outreach to forge a winning alliance. Conservatives, listen up. Mike Balzano, thank you so much for joining us. Well, the pleasure is mine, Jonathan. I'm very happy to talk to you about this book today. Yeah, the, the backdrop of your book is centered on your upbringing on Wooster Street in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, can you describe uh, the neighborhood, uh, your upbringing, and your family? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I am the uh, child of a working-class Italian immigrant who came here in 1906. I was born in 1935, so I grew up between the two wars, and my parents were working-class Roosevelt Democrats. They both worked in machine shops, and uh, I spent uh, the early years of my life, I had a, sort of a, a bad start because I was um, dismissed from one Catholic school, one public school, and I spent an awful lot of my time wandering around the shipyard, uh, down in the docks area, watching tankers, and, and I spent a lot of my time um, peering through the windows of factories. I mean, in those days, New England was a major manufacturing sector. So I spent a lot of my time there. Now, I dropped out of high school uh, because, uh, because of my learning disabilities. I'm dyslexic. And um, I worked as a garbage collector um, uh, for several years, and then I hurt my back, and I was unable to lift garbage cans anymore. So I, I actually went back to high school when I was 21. Um, at that time, I read at the fifth grade level, but learning disabilities were severe. I went through high school, and then I went off to uh, to go to college, and I started college. I won scholarships. I graduated uh, magna cum laude from the university, um, and then I got a Ph.D. from Georgetown. When I graduated from the university, Georgetown, they, um, they, they notified the local newspapers that a former garbage collector had gotten a doctor's degree, and people on, on Nixon's staff... Uh, I thought that, wow, I mean, we were looking, Nixon was trying to find someone who could communicate with Democrat blue-collar people. And uh, because of my background, uh, I was chosen to be a special assistant to the president for communications. Um, what is unique about that is I never worked in a political campaign before, and I was not a Republican. You, you describe the people that you grew up with, you know, the Italian, the Greek, uh, the Polish, as, as kind of an achievement class. Uh, what, what, what did you mean by that, and what, what did these people aspire to? Well, 
everyone in our community um, immigrated to the United States, I'd say between the late 1800s, 18, 1895, 2000, um, uh, 1900. And what happened was they were people who were having uh, terrible problems in their own country. They came to America uh, not only because it was a country that was free, but it was a country that allowed people to work and achieve. And all of these people were achievers. Um, they believed in hard work and sacrifice. They were totally committed to the achievement ethic. And these are the people who ultimately became the American middle class. Uh, my parents were part of that. Uh, my father came here in 1906. Um, and they were both they were both factory workers. That's how they made a living. Um, but their children were able to stand on their shoulders and reach the next step up the ladder, up into the middle class. I certainly did that. Everyone in the community did that. Why was President Nixon so interested um, in uh, attaining these people as part of his governing coalition? Well, see, this is the thing. Um, Nixon was he he was recognized as someone who was from humble ranks. He was accepted by working class people of one uh, of one of their own. Um, Nixon never campaigned against Democrats. He sought to create an alliance with them to broaden the base of the Republican Party. So what you see in Nixon, what they saw in Nixon, was someone they could identify with. And of course, he identified with them as well. So both of these groups, the, the ethnic community, the working class immigrants, uh, and Richard Nixon, they were cut from the same cloth. And that's why they, it, was, it was not a difficult thing for them to endorse him at all, because they saw him, from my perspective, they saw him as one of their own. And, and what was their, traditionally in the 20th century, what was, what was their voting pattern? I mean, did they traditionally vote Democrat? Um, did well, they sit out elections? Yeah. Did, they, did they vote Republican? No, no, no. You, you have here, um, my mother, in addition to having uh, you know, the portrait of Jesus in the house also had the portrait of Roosevelt because these were the people who suffered the most in the Depression, the Great Depression. Uh, my father always told me that had it not been for Roosevelt, we all would have starved to death. My father used to take me to various neighborhoods um, around the area to show me the curbstones that he laid when he was working on the WPA. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to keep them alive. And what happened was, between the, the Depression and Roosevelt caring about them, trying to provide something for them, then there were the Democratic unions, okay? They tried to provide for income for the lower classes. So between the Roosevelt tradition and the, the, the uh, outreach by the Democratic Party, all of these people were Democrats. I don't think I met a Republican uh, you know, in, in that neighborhood in my, in, throughout my entire life. The person who gets um, prominent uh, attention in your book 
is the late Chuck Colson. Uh, what kind of person was he, and uh, what was he hired to do uh, in the White House? Well, again, uh, Chuck Colson, um, ultimately, he became a minister, okay? He was always, uh, he cared about people. Yes, he was a campaign director. I mean, he was Nixon's, probably Nixon's most uh, trusted advisor. And he was the one who... uh, they selected me to work on his staff because he was the one charged with outreach to working class people. So I got to know him very well. Um, he his job originally was to help Nixon stay on course. The White House, the White House is a lot of people. You know, um, I I once described it as all of Shakespeare's plays going on simultaneously. Everyone seems to have their own agenda. Colson was brought in the White House to make everybody's agenda Nixon's agenda. And from the writings that Chuck has said, basically the letters he has sent me um, over time, I feel that role quite was to be a a surrogate from the Democratic Party to Democrat communities. So I dealt with labor unions, working class people, ethnic organizations, and the affinity between the Nixon administration and these groups was 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 positive because they saw him as one of their own and they believed in the same things that he believed in. Chuck Holson, um, he was the conductor in the White House of that symphony. And what was your what was your work like uh, in terms of uh, reaching out to these types of voters? Can you kind of take us through in detail uh, what this what this process looked like? Well, the moment the word got out that uh, that Nixon had on his staff a working class Italian. I suddenly began getting invitations from union leaders across the country. To, to actually come out and talk to them. But that was easy. So I traveled around the country talking with Italians, Poles, Greeks, Slavs. I was very heavily involved in Nixon's trip to Poland because I dealt with all of the ethnic fraternals. So the director of the Polish National Alliance, uh, the Polish-American Congress, the Ukrainians. I dealt with all these people. And so I became, I became the communication link between them. Now, um, in addition to that, uh, I, I actually was contacted by people who were high-ranking Democrats in the country. For example, uh, I was contacted by Mayor Richard Daley of Chicago, and I went out to see him, and uh, during that meeting, he introduced me to his top political advisor, a man by the name of Vito Marzullo. And suddenly, before that meeting was over, it was very clear that uh, Mayor Daley was supporting Nixon in the election of 72. Uh, and the same thing happened, um, basically, with Mayor Alioto, who was the mayor of San Francisco. Um, now, with Mayor Rizzo of Philadelphia, 
it was even more pronounced because here Mayor Rizzo made no secret of his support. And he actually changed political parties to become a Republican during the campaign. There's one thing that is really interesting here that most people would not know unless they read this book. Um, uh, one of the most uh, important supporters of Richard Nixon was the president of the United Steelworkers of America, a man named I.W. Abel. Abel was considered the statesman. He had the largest industrial union in America at that time. And he had me sit down with a man named Francis Lefty <laughs> Scamacy. And um, during our conversations, most people will never know this, during our conversations, he told me that the, the United Steelworkers were in great peril because most of the companies that employed his union members were in Chapter 11. He feared they would all fail. And he asked me, personally, if I could get Richard Nixon to do something for the people who could conceivably lose their pensions. Now, that time, I sat down with Colson when I came back from that trip. And Colson said, boy, this is going to be something, but let's try it. He then talked to Nixon, got back to me in two days, and Nixon said, let's try it. And ultimately, Nixon sponsored something called the Pension Guarantee Corporation. Now, this is extremely important. During the time when that bill was going up on the hill and was ready to be signed, Nixon resigned. He sat down with Gerald Ford. Ford did not support that bill. But as a tribute to Nixon... He signed it. So we have a pension guarantee program because I.W. Abel asked Nixon to do it. Colson made it happen, and Jerry Ford let it go through. I mean, that, that's an incredible story. That's very interesting. Why didn't the, you know, why didn't these labor unions or the big city mayors, if on the Democratic side, um, why didn't they support? George McGovern of the Democratic Democratic Party was uh, far more reliable in this area. Very, very, very astute question. You see, what happens is people do not understand that the Democrats at the blue-collar level are very socially conservative. Um, the unions and working-class people oppose many of the social policies initiated by Democrats. They see the Democrats as being soft on crime, student protest. Um, they, they seem to be in favor of promiscuity, uh, the, the use of drugs, and they do not support a strong national defense base. So Democrats, usually, they're very sympathetic to Republicans on this issue. Because what I, I believe, <clears throat> I believe that the Democrats have a natural advantage uh, to win elections because there are more blue collar and uh, more blue collar and more working class people. But they lose that advantage when they embrace all of these liberal social policies. 
what is needed at that time is a Republican candidate who appreciates their values, supports them, and supports those issues that are important to them. And Nixon supported their values because he believed in their values. Those were the values of his childhood, his parents, and his entire life. He also, because of his understanding of history, that's the one thing I really appreciated being in anywhere near Nixon, was his knowledge of history. I have, a, I have an undergraduate in history. He understood history. And he understood that without a strong national defense, a country is subjected to all kinds of problems. So he made sure we were strong. And, and the, the ethnic community understood that because they saw that in him. As a matter of fact, they saw Nixon as the ultimate freedom fighter, especially those captive nations, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, all of those nations behind the Iron Curtain. Their immigrants to this country respected Nixon because they knew that he understood what was happening in their homeland. You write that one of the major breakthroughs in building this new majority came with the outreach to a man named Jesse Calhoun, president of the Marine Engineers Beneficial Association. Um, as President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger were negotiating uh, SALT One, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty with the Soviet Union, can you describe what happened here, and um, and what was the what sure. was the what were the dealings with Calhoun? Sure, sure. I met Calhoun twice. I met him during the Nixon years, and I met him later than the Reagan years. But in the Nixon years, Calhoun understood. That the maritime, that, that I'm talking about the marine engineers, the people who actually work on civilian cargo ships. He understood that the nation's civilian maritime fleet was dying. And it was dying because people did not insist that we use American ships to carry American goods. So he and Nixon were very close. And Calhoun was able to help Nixon on the strategic arms limitation agreement because that agreement was dead in the water because the, the Democrats on Capitol Hill were opposing it. And Nixon went to Jesse and said, I've got a problem, can you help me? And Jesse said, yes. The way to do this is to insist that the United States build its own fleet. So over time, uh, over about four months, Nixon became the proponent of the, uh, the fleet that carries Alaskan oil. So he built a hundred brand new modern tankers to serve the oil, the oil uh, move oil from Alaska down to the lower 48 states. Um, Nixon, uh, and what happened was um, Calhoun got all of the unions to stop protesting over shipping grain to the Russians. The only reason that deal was alive was because the Russians were starving to death. And Nixon knew that he could not get American seamen 
to load or ship American grain, okay? And it was Calhoun who broke that deadlock. You write that a second major breakthrough was the the hard hat riots in New York in 1970. And this involved a, another big, powerful labor figure, uh, Peter Brennan, who would go on to uh, serve as Secretary of Labor. Could you describe what happened here as well? Sure. Uh, I was not there at the time, but what happened was there were a whole bunch of so-called college-age protesters on Wall Street. And very much like the, the, uh, the, the sit-ins we had two or three, four years ago. But this time, the construction workers were on catwalks, and they saw uh, a bunch of college kids carrying Viet Cong flags. And suddenly, you know, words were, were exchanged, and one thing led to another, and suddenly the, um, <laughs> the construction workers came off those cranes, and it was a terrible fight. Uh, those kids ran for their lives. That night, it was all over the all over the TV networks. Um, and Mayor, at that time, Mayor Lindsay, tried to try to uh, try to get the two sides to talk to each other. That was impossible. So the mayor convinced that the president of the building trades, and that was Peter Brennan, to do something positive. Okay. And Brennan set up a march in support of the president, okay? Uh, The march took place uh, in New York City, and uh, Peter Brennan uh, put that march together. It it lasted over five hours. Colson saw the discussion on television that night of what transpired. Nixon got on the telephone, found Peter Brennan to thank him for and his members for what they did. Um, Brennan, in talking with him, Nixon said, why don't you come to Washington? I'd like to, I'd like to shake your hand. In the process, he said, well, I've got my whole bargaining committee here. And he said, bring them all. So in the book, there's the discussion of Peter Brennan's bringing a group of hard hat uh, union leaders who were involved in that march, uh, I think there were something like 16 or 18 of them, and they went to Washington uh, and met with the president. He, he took them in the, in the Oval Office, met with all of them, and he, he established a very close friendship with Peter Brennan. Later, after the election of 1972, um, he appointed Peter Brennan to be the Secretary of Labor. How did Nixon's coalition differ from 1968 when he ran as the law and order candidate against Hubert Humphrey uh, to 1972 against McGovern? That's a very good question. In 1968, um, I was at Georgetown studying under Jean Kirkpatrick. Uh, One of her uh, closest associates was Hubert Humphrey. I got to know him very well. Hubert Humphrey was he was a Roosevelt Democrat. But what happened was, because of the student protests, the riots, I mean, all of those things that are happening right now, uh, incidentally, <laughs> all of those things were going on. And when he got to Chicago, uh, the convention was held in Chicago. 
all of those different groups came to Chicago and they they, they rioted in the streets. Uh, they they literally changed the nature uh, and the view of the country about who are these kids. Okay, and what happened was the Hubert Humphrey lost the election because of all of the demonstrations. It wasn't a question of ideological differences between him and Nixon. Nixon was clearly in the right. Humphrey agreed with him on most of the issues, but there was no way the nation was going to tolerate what was going on in the streets of Chicago. Going back to what I said earlier, Vito Marzullo told me that because... Mayor Daley's delegation was unseated, and because of all the problems that they had with those, quote, revolutionary kids, Vito told me that Mayor Daley gave the election in 1960 to John F. Kennedy, and in, 19, in 1972, he would give Chicago to Richard Nixon. I mean, that, that is an incredible change of, of variables, but it worked. Uh, ultimately, I would say to you, not, many Republicans might not agree, Richard Nixon had more in common with Roosevelt Democrats than he had with the average person in the electorate, Okay. Slowly but surely, the Democratic Party has moved from representing working-class people to representing college-educated elite people, leaving the other ones out of representation. Nixon saw that coming, and, he, and he, that's one of the reasons he appealed to the working class and won them hands down. Speaking of that realignment, um Today we see a divided G GOP over uh, the nominee, Donald Trump. Uh, back in the 70s, did the transition to the new majority startle traditional GOP stalwarts as the complexion of the party started to change? You know, it did not, it, it did not, Republicans in the traditional GOP, they saw Nixon was succeeding. Nobody was going to get in his way. You have that problem more today than you had it in 1972, because today the Republican Party, as we know it, uh, and again, I am not a traditional Republican. Okay, I am a Republican through economics, through my relationship with Nixon and Reagan. But but there there is the Republican Party of today did doesn't appear, at least as yet to embrace a candidate like Trump, whereas there was no problem with Nixon at all. They understood Nixon. He had campaigned for them when he left office, and he represented all of those things that they claimed were the, were the touchstone of the Republican Party. So he did not have that problem. Tell us about the evolution of the new majority since President Nixon. Well, that's that's somewhat sad. Um, when the last time I spoke with Nixon, it was concerning a chapter in a book called 
the Nixon presidency. It was a symposium uh, conducted by Hofstra University. Um, I submitted a chapter. I was honored to, I was requested that I would submit a chapter on the election of 1972 on the new majority. I wrote that chapter, I think it's like 25, 30 pages long. When I completed the chapter, I sent it to Julie Eisenhower. She gave the chapter to her father. And in a note to me, she said, Michael, he read it at one sitting. Okay. I then, a day later, I received a letter from Nixon saying, this is a very important chapter. You know, you've, you've, you've outlined some things that really we should be focusing on today. This was 1988. Um, I met Nixon you know, in Washington, oh, a year or so before he died, and he said, that chapter was really good. And I said, yes, I said. He said, you know, nobody's focusing on what we did. And I said, I intend to write a book that that makes the new majority a term used in the lexicon of modern political science. You could see the, the smile on his face. Because, you see, prior to the election, week, two weeks, he called the entire staff into his office, uh, into the, we went, and I think it was the, um, the family theater. And he said, you know, he said, we're going to win this election. And we're going to win it because of the techniques that we have introduced in this election. We have surrogates, who are in the communities where they come from. We have democratic surrogates. We have, we have divided the electorate into voter bloc groups. And we have approached each of those groups with people from their own communities. This is a first in political science. He said, the political scientists are going to be talking about this election forever. Well, what we needed was a textbook that described it. And I was Chuck Colson's, he was my mentor on what the new majority was. This book that I have written is a textbook on the new majority. I know it's going to be hard to get my book into universities today because the university community does not want to talk about the genius of Nixon. But this book is a textbook. It is a book that covers the elections from 1968 to 2012. All of those presidential candidates who embraced Nixon's new majority won their elections. Those, those presidential candidates who rejected it lost. And those who won, won because, like Nixon, they reached out to labor unions, to working class, and to the ethnic groups. That's where the country is. Today, the Democratic Party has moved from the party of Roosevelt to a party that represents a very growing portion of society, the college-educated, the professional class, but in doing so, they have abandoned the industries 
that employed the working class. When you move away from the defense sector, the industrial base, these are the people who are unemployed right now, today. These are the people who, who, who constitute the unemployed American. And it all because the Democratic Party has changed its strategy for who they believe are the, is their natural constituency. They're voting with college kids, graduates, professionals, and no attention, no attention is being paid to the workers and the unions who populate the industrial base. Thank you, Mike Bolzano, for your time. Well, Jonathan, I, it's an honor for me uh, to talk to anyone who listens to the stories of Richard Nixon, because he was our greatest president. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.